Hello, everyone. This is Jerry Reese. I'm a writer, director, animator, sometimes sculptor and voice actor who is talking to you from the Skull Rock podcast. Have fun. Skull Rock podcast, talking all things Disney with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Each week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and what is streaming and what is in theaters. And of course, what's going on in the multiverse of entertainment. I'm Al John Goh, one of your co-hosts, lifelong Disney, Marvel, Star Wars fan, and pop culturist. And you can email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossert, your other co-host and cage fighter and daredevil. <laughs> uh, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Yes. I thought I'd change it up a little, Aljon. I love the cage fighter part. That was good. <laughs> If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And you can email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. And Al John, we've got a great show today. Oh, man. We've got part, part one of John Musker, uh, the director, producer, writer, uh, who I really believe is one of the driving pistons of the Disney renaissance of animation. Man, you're not kidding. His work is prolific. You know, I consider him a Disney legend, and he is, uh, you know, he is a lot of, of fun. And yeah. I can't wait to delve into it. I mean, you know, he was definitely uh, part of that whole uh, Disney renaissance and been behind the scenes of wow. some of the, the great Disney films that people know and love today. So looking forward to talking to John about that and his yeah, early career. Yeah, absolutely. His early career. So uh, that's going to be part one. Uh, obviously, this is going to be a par part two a week from now. Uh, and uh, I also want to jump in and say we got a really great email from Scott, one of our listeners. And I'm going to read the whole thing to you because I just thought this was a lovely email. Is that all right? Sure. Let me do this. We got to hit the sound effect. <laughs> Answers your email. So th this was a great uh, email I got. It says, hi, Dave. Just wanted to drop a line to say how much I enjoyed the show about the true life adventures behind the scenes. So interesting to learn about their creation. One of my big regrets is I never got to meet Roy Disney. I was going to try and go to a, uh, a signing of the True Life Adventure DVD set at the Grove here in Los Angeles, but I ended up having a conflict. You are so lucky to have known him so well. From everything I've seen and read, he was a great man who believed strongly in Walt's legacy and keeping it alive. The show continues to be great, and I really enjoy the interviews, and you have great conversations with the subjects. I'd love to have a show about, the, about Disney on the front lines DVD set. It's another period in the studio's history that isn't talked about much. And that set is so interesting and I'd love to learn more about it. Keep up the great work. Have a nice weekend, Scott. That's Scott Rosen. And he says, P.S. My kids and I 
went out to our first movie in the theater last weekend, Turning Red at the El Capitan. I so agree that is much better seeing a movie in a theater. And it was so fun seeing this on a big screen with an audience, even though I could have seen it on Disney Plus for free. I have been lucky enough to see every Disney and Pixar movie in the theater other than a couple of the 40s anthology films and the newest one like Soul and Raya, which I am sure will play at the El Cap soon. PPS. Thanks for the shout out a few weeks ago. My kids thought it was pretty cool. Well, your <laughs> kids are going to think this is pretty cool again because we gave you another shout out. And I, I say thank you very much for this lovely email. And uh, also the suggestion of doing Disney on the Frontlines DVD set. Uh-huh. So Al, John and I are actually going to talk about on uh, Disney on the Frontlines, the DVD set of the World War II shorts that was put out on the uh, Treasures editions uh, back in the early 2000s mm-hmm. and we're going to do that show later in uh april so yeah. uh i hope you stay tuned and listen and thanks again scott for the email and i hope your kids go nuts that we're giving you that shout out <laughs> that's awesome man hey enjoy the rock star status while it lasts <laughs> you know <laughs> so uh now that, that's really cool i love getting the listener uh comments and such um, you know, we have a couple other comments, um, and maybe we can, we'll just go ahead and, and throw these in here. I'll put this to you yeah. because, you know, they really wanted to talk to, to, to John about some of this, but, um, you know, unfortunately we're not able to, to answer too many questions, uh, with John, uh, regarding some of these, but I'll ask you instead. So Jonathan Warren's asking, seeing as treasure planet, it, uh, it has a following and considered a classic by some. Do you think uh, Disney would return to Treasure Planet if something was made for Disney Plus, including John Musker? So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, who knows? You know, I, I think that uh, Disney has been very good about reaching out to filmmakers uh, if they're going to uh, further those storylines. So if they did do something, I'm sure they would reach out to uh, John Musker and Ron Clemens, uh, the two directors. Uh, And by the way, I agree. I think Treasure Planet uh, is one of those underrated movies. I think it's a very good film. Uh, I think they did some very innovative stuff in it. And, you know, we're going to have John back uh, to talk about other films. Um, I mean, you, you know, uh, somebody like John Musker, you, you, you really uh, could spend five, six, eight hours hours or more, you know, just talking with them. So, you, you know, after we do these two episodes, we, we, we said we were going to bring them back and we will later in the year uh, and into next year, we're going to be bringing John back to talk about various film projects, just specifically one project and try instead of trying to go through his entire career all in one shot. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, yeah. that's coming up. So John is asking, uh, I would really like to see a Pirates of the Caribbean animated film or series for Disney Plus. What do you think about that? Uh, You know something? I love the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Uh, You know, look, it's a live action film. Why do you want to make it animated? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. I mean, they, they did such a spectacular job with the live action. Yeah. And they may be able to do something in that universe, you know, right now yeah. things are kind of you, in a, in a weird place with pirates franchise as it stands now with its stars and different things. So you never know how that'll shake out, but 
it's possible to have a really successful, you know, series based on maybe a young Jack Sparrow. That might be kind of cool to have a young Jack Sparrow series, you know, in Pirates uh, universe. But, you know, you never know. Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, you know, when I think of Pirates of the Caribbean, it's all about Jack Sparrow and Johnny Depp, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I don't know. I think there's I think there's something to be said about not doing any more uh, spinoffs uh, of a popular film. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's kind of like, you know, don't you know, would you ever do a, a, a sequel to Casablanca? Mm hmm. No, mm-hmm. you know, leave, leave it. It's, it's a standalone by itself. Leave it there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a classic. Yeah. And I kind of feel like the five pirates of the Caribbean films are just great. You know? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, we appreciate it. Don't forget gang. You can always send us your questions to either Al John or Dave at skullrockpodcast.com or leave us messages via social media. Facebook is a great way to do that as well. And uh, we would appreciate it. And maybe your Email will be read on the next episode of Skull Rock Podcast. So, Dave, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I was just going to say, Al John, I love when our listeners uh, send suggestions in for uh, shows. Mm-hmm. I really do. And, you know, the the whole uh, Disney on the front lines, the World War II period, there's, it's so rich with material. We could, we could really do quite a number of shows to talk about that. So I'm really looking forward to, to doing the first version or the first part of that show later uh later in april yeah i love it i love it too and and that series is just right for for discussion because uh absolutely a lot of little gems in there as well so we'll we'll uh i'm looking forward to that show so here we are talking about what we are doing this week in terms of streaming and what we watched in theaters dave i'll let you you know get us kicked off here yeah, you know, I uh, have been watching a bunch of stuff. Uh, I went to the movies and I saw a film called The Outfit. Uh, and this is a what I would consider a small movie, uh, but a really well done movie. Uh, it's about Leonard uh, is an English tailor who makes suits on London's famous Seville Row. He must mm. outsmart da- a dangerous group of criminals to survive a fateful night. Now he was an English tailor on Seville row, but is now operating his own tailor shop in Chicago. Mm. And he's actually making, um, uh, he's making suits for uh, mobsters, you know, Mm. criminals. Uh, And this was a very, very well acted, beautifully shot, uh, film. Uh, it stars Mark uh, Ryan, uh, Rylance as Leonard. Uh, and it's just really wonderfully done. I, I really enjoyed this. I saw it in the movie theater. Again, a uh, small movie, uh, but uh, a really well done one and worth watching. Very nice. I also watched uh, Windfall uh, on uh, Netflix. <laughs> and I, I would consider this a, a small movie. There's really three stars in it. Uh, Jason Plemons, who many might know from uh, this year's uh, Oscar-nominated Power of the Dog, uh, and Jason Segel and Lily Collins. 
And the premise is a man breaks into a tech billionaire's empty vacation home, but things go sideways when the arrogant mogul and his wife arrive for a last minute getaway. And this has an incredible twist at the end, Al John. I have to tell you, mm-hmm. I enjoyed watching the performances. Uh, it was nice to see Jason Siegel in a movie. Hadn't mm-hmm. seen him in a while. Uh, yeah. And uh, just really well done. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, I also, uh, because you saw it last week and spoke highly of it, I watched Turning Red on Disney+. Plus. Okay. Are we going to agree to disagree? (laughs) No, no, we're going to agree. I really liked it a lot. Oh, great. I really really liked it a lot. I thought it was an extremely well done movie. Um, I would have liked to have seen it on a big screen, but um, Mm -hmm. I I thought, uh, you know, just beautifully done, beautifully art directed. Uh, I love the character designs. They were really fun, weren't they? Yeah, I agree. Uh, They're fun. They're squishy. I like the squishiness. (laughs) Yeah, they're cartoony. that's That's what animation should be all about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, very well done. Uh, and I would highly recommend it to our listeners, uh, check out turning red on Disney plus, uh, and then I've been binge watching search party, which is, which is a, a dark comedy series. Uh, on HBO Max, and this the 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 first season premiered in 2016, and the final fifth season uh, premiered this past January 2022. So uh, it's it's relatively current as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's ending with se- uh, season five, but but this is definitely a dark comedy. <laughs> uh, and you know, one minute you're laughing your tail off, and the next minute you're like shocked. You're like, what? You know. <laughs> So there, there's, uh, you know, missing people, there's murder, there's uh, kidnappings, uh, uh, cross-dressing. Uh, I mean, there's everything under the sun that you can imagine. Sure. And, and it's funny and crazy and shocking uh, nice. all rolled into one. So I've like been enjoying it. that. Nice. Very nice. What well, have you good. been watching? Well, it's been a really interesting week for me. You know, typically we we try to slide in a few movies, but it's been everyone's schedule's been messed up this week. So, uh, I actually been watching a, a new series on Netflix called called Is It Cake, <laughs> and it's a it's a reality based show, kind of like Chopped or any kind of cooking baking show. And my my wife is like, you know, my her sister is like really getting into cake making. And so we looked at this and it's fun. Like, I mean, it's 30 minutes show and people are making objects that look like real life objects. And the judges are looking at it going, is that a real purse or is it cake? And they have a whole bunch of stuff there and then they chop into it. And it's like, and they're trying to guess and they're trying to recreate the, the stuff and full panels of judges. And it's just, it's just you know, 30 minutes of just, uh, you know, fun. But, um, the, the big, the big film that we watched this week is, uh, and it's unfortunate because of, uh, what had happened. We're going to talk about in the news about, uh, the Foo Fighters, but, uh, studio six, 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 you know, me in the horror movies, Dave, we go deep. <laughs> um, but the Foo Fighters had released a, a film, um, a couple months ago and I finally got around to watching it. It's about the Foo Fighters. Of course, uh, they move into a mansion steeped in some history and some, uh, mystery and possibly some haunting. And, uh, they're recording their, uh, anticipated 10th album in there. And they wanted to get that whole castle Donington Led Zeppelin 
Zeppelin, you know, I'm, you know, this house has got some serious bad juju and we want to capture that on, on, on tape and, and release it to the world. And of course the band, uh, Dave Grohl's the band leader from the Foo Fighters gets possessed and, you know, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but, uh, it's kind of irreverent, dark comedy, um, and there's a lot of SNL cast members in there as well that make it even funnier because I believe you know Jeff Garland is in it. Yeah. Uh, Whitney Cummings is hilarious in this this film. So there's a bunch of uh, different great. Uh, Will Forte is in there as well, and uh, some interesting cameos. Uh, John Carpenter, uh, legendary horror film icon, is in there as well. So there's a bunch of great little cameos, but it's a tongue in cheek. Uh, fun romp, um, and it it is very unfortunate uh, what happened to their drummer. But we'll talk about that in the news. I yeah, I I was gonna say um, when I saw the trail. Did you see this in the theater or did you see it on? Television? I saw it. I saw it at home. Yeah, it's streaming. Uh, what, what what was it streaming on? Uh, I think it was on. Uh, where where did I see it? It's on Prime Video. I mean, you got Prime. it. I got it from Prime Video. I mean, my company's also uh, yeah. supports the the Foo Fighters. Sure. So, uh, you know, we were able to, it is in theaters, so you can, uh, I believe you can still check it out in theaters, but, uh, you know, we couldn't wait. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, let's yeah. go ahead and watch it. Cause you know, and, um, and like I said, it's just, it's just a lot of fun. So you can get it on, on prime video right now. Uh, well, good. Because I saw the trailer for this a number of times in the theater. Uh-huh. Uh, and I just shook my head because I thought it looked terrible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't it think is. the trailer was very good. No, you know? but, no. but now, now that you've seen it and, and you've enjoyed it, I think I might try it. Well, I, look, I, I think, I think it's not, it, it's a comedy over horror. So okay. if it's got horror elements, but it's it's irreverent. It's almost like a br- British style of comedy. So okay. if if you're into that kind of stuff, um, you know, um, the crazy humor, it's almost Spinal Tap esque in, in in certain aspects. Oh, so that's awesome. If you awesome. like that, that's great. But it, you know, it's it's got some darkness. But like I said, you have you know half of Saturday Night Live is in this this movie, <laughs> so you might as well. I mean, it's just fun. But if you, I do suggest it though if you're a fan of the Foo Fighters, and to see the band do something other than their irreverent music videos because they're known to to you know, to spoof the Bee Gees and to, no. to spoof a bunch of commercials and different things in their, in their music videos, you're going to love it. Um, and it's fun. Is it for everybody? No, I give it a, I give it a six and I'm a huge six out of 10. I'm a huge Foo Fighters fan and I definitely enjoyed it for what it is. Is it the exorcist? No, it is not okay, the good, exorcist. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, all right. So, uh, with that being said, you know, I, we want to know what you're streaming to. So feel free to drop us a line on social or an email and, and let us know what you recommend. Okay. And now on to Skull Rock Podcast, ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Big ups to Marvel Studios. Don't forget this week, March 30th on Disney Plus, Moon Knight is going to be streaming. Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke will be facing off. And I love both of those actors very much. So uh, looking forward to that. You know, Moon Knight is one of those uh, characters, the dark characters in the Marvel Universe, as it were, in comics that deals with uh, a bunch of different issues. You know, he's got mel- mental illness and disassociative disorder. And, um, you know, he tries to be a hero, but uh, there is other forces at play. 
Um, a lot of people liken him to uh, Batman, but uh, I think he's got some other things going for it. Um, and Oscar Isaac and his performance in the trailers look amazing. And of course, Ethan Hawke, big fan of Ethan Hawke. So looking forward to checking that out. Streaming on Disney+. Oscar, Plus. I, I, Oscar Isaac and... Uh, Ethan Hawke, both yeah, great actors. Absolutely. It's going to be really cool. Uh, you shared this tidbit with me, Dave, about Beauty and the Beast and its unprecedented Oscar run in 1992. Kind of uh, interesting uh, timing to talk about that because we've been talking about Beauty and the Beast a lot over the past few months. Uh, 30 years after the Disney musical became the first animated film to land a Best Picture nom, dozens connected with it, including studio honchos Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg and directors Gary Trousdale and Kirk Wise, campaign strategist Terry Press and animator voice actors reflect on making Hollywood history. This comes to us from The Hollywood Reporter. What a great article. Yeah, it really was a terrific article, and it, it gives you a little bit of behind the scenes on what was going on back then. Uh, I just was, like, shocked that it's 30 years now, you know. <laughs> uh, it really is. It's kind of crazy. But 30 years it is. Uh, 30 years for the uh, the Oscars, uh, where Beauty and the Beast was one of the five Best Picture nominations that year. I love it. I love the behind the scenes um pictures that they were able to share in this article one of them being an amazing photo with uh, david ogden styers and angela lansbury and jerry orbach just amazing actors in their own right and uh, incredibly nice people oh. you know I, I i didn't meet jerry orbach but but i had met angela lansbury mm -hmm. a number of times and also uh i worked with david ogden styers on a number of projects yeah. uh and and had the opportunity to direct him uh for his uh, voice work uh just a super nice man i uh, really enjoyed working with him. I feel like David Ogden Stiers doesn't get enough credit for the work he's done um, in cinema, but I think he was Disney's lucky charm to a lot of degree because he's been yeah. in so many Disney films. Yeah, but absolutely. Uh, you know, what a great nice. talent. So I, yeah. I urge everybody to, to seek out that article. And not so uh, great news. Disney walkout spurs in-person action in Burbank with a social media response from Disney stars. You know, this plus a number of different things are kind of spiraling out of control. Mark Ruffalo kind of chimed into the discussion. Um, you had other Disney stars chime into the discussion about this Disney walkout. Um, it's just spiraling out of control. <laughs> you know, can you say quagmire? Yeah. You know, because because this is just turning into a, just a gigantic quagmire. I mean, it, it, it's just, it, it keeps unfolding day to day, week to week. I mean, I think this is now going to be the third week that there's more of this stuff coming out. We can't yeah, uh, pay our total taxes. Oop. There goes, there goes TV speaking to, <laughs> to David saying, no, we've had enough. Um, you know, you're right. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where memos or internal memos are being circulated back and forth about what to wear, what not to wear. Can you support this cause, not support this cause? You, um, and, 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 you know, all of this just goes against the premise of uh, inclusion and diversity. Uh, because uh, in my mind, as I said, I think a week or so ago, the Walt Disney Company has such a broad audience appeal. Uh, people from all walks of life are fans uh, of Disney, and you can't uh, you can't take sides 
that's why I don't think the company should be involved in politics. Mm -hmm. I think the company really needs to step back uh, and not give to individual politicians. You know, if they if they feel they have to give something, just give donations to the national party or the state parties and let the parties distribute the funds. But, you know, to me, uh, you can't you can't take a stand on one thing if you're going to alienate an audience, you know, a portion of your audience on the other side. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, diversity and inclusion cuts both ways. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think you know, I think you you got to be understanding of people and where they come from in their own personal experiences. But having said that, you know, it looks like they're also postponing a management retreat too. As uh, CEO Bob Chapek continues to account for the company's uh, responses to uh, the controversies over the recent weeks, and yeah, one, and, that, uh, and that, that annual retreat with the CEO uh, and top leadership uh, usually takes place in Orlando. Mm-hmm. So another reason why they, I think, they were canceling it is to want to have everybody go down there. Mm-hmm. Well, in other news, Netflix tries to monetize password sharing, but will it work? Um, you can try Netflix. You can certainly try, um, but they're doing an about face for its counting in the sharing of subscriber bases. Um, you know, they just want all their their money going to to them. And well, you know, you know. The, the, look, it's one thing to share your 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 password with family members. It's another to start sharing passwords with friends. You know, and you know one one person. You know paying for a subscription and giving it to five or 10 people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and I do believe that, you know, uh, this is, this is wrong. You know, if you, if you're going to watch a service, pay for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know there's people out there that think everything on the internet should be free. Uh, but that isn't the case. And, and if, if people are stealing service, uh, that's lost revenue. And that means that these companies uh, you know, don't have uh, fully monetized uh, their service and that additional revenue could go to more content being oh, developed, sure. you know? So uh, I, I'm one that believes if, you know, if, if you're going to go to a movie, you buy a ticket and you go to the movie, you know, if you're going to turn on your television and watch a streaming service, pay for the streaming service. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and Lord knows we are, <laughs> you know, between yeah. all of our services we pay for here at the house is, well, you know, and, and music is the same way, gang, you know, I mean, you know, we do the same thing with all of our services. I get ex- extended family plans because I want to share uh, that, that capability with my granddad or well, not my granddad, but my dad. And then, you know, yeah. and uh, Kristen's family. So we have extended plans. Your dad to who is a granddad. Now. Yeah. He is a granddad. Now you're right. <laughs> yeah. That's what I call. It's funny. You know, since we have kids, you know, I, I, I we have different names, right? Because you realize you have, you have grandma, sure. grandpa, then you have papa, nana, and then you got, you know, and I have to call my wife. I call my wife, Kristen. I call her mommy all the time in the house because that's what the kids should be calling her. So right, it trips me out. But anyway, <laughs> but that, but that's what we do. And, you know, I don't even have all my, my accounts, um, my extended family accounts activated. I just have a couple that I pay for, but you pay the, the whole, the whole thing. And, and of course with Netflix, everybody has their own Netflix account. It's kind of strange to me at this point that people would be, you know, really penny pinching to, to do that just to, 
Well, but but hey, you know, to each their own. Uh, yeah. Pay for the service, gang. Pay for the service. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know? And they they'll find you out. They'll send you a notice. You know, they will. They'll send you a notice. Um, here's something really cool. You sent me this note um, about how this mobile marionette theater uh, kind of open bringing this entertainment to the masses with this mobile theater truck. To yeah, cope this with, is the, yeah. this is the Bob Baker marionette theater mm-hmm. here in los angeles cool uh and there was a great article in the los angeles times uh on uh on this uh, uh marionette theater uh bob baker uh passed away a number of years ago but this marionette theater is uh really uh an incredible resource uh for the community i think and uh it was a great article from the standpoint of how they adapted to uh the pandemic Mm-hmm. Uh, and when their theater closed down, uh, they were able to go online and a lot of their puppeteers uh, 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 took marionettes home uh, and were doing YouTube videos. And, uh, and when they were struggling financially, they put out a call to their fan base and the fan base stepped up with donations um, and uh, they were able to uh, uh, acquire this uh, this truck and turn it into a mobile marionette theater that they could go out to parks and uh, various uh, places uh, to do their shows. And, uh, you know, this is one of those art forms that I think is uh, valuable uh, for the community. Uh, you know, puppeteering and, and, you know, Al John, I know you, you're, you're part Filipino, um, you know, in the Philippines and Indonesia, uh, you know, these puppet shows are hugely popular. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have to say, um, uh, if you're in Los Angeles, uh, look up the Bob Baker Marionette Theater and check it out. Um, I, I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, um, I, I always get a kick out of watching uh, puppet shows. I love it. And I, I've always loved puppeteering since I was a kid. I've had numerous marionettes. I thought they were absolutely fascinating. And this really just opens up the, the mind of a child and even the adult. You can get lost in it because it's absolutely mesmerizing. And I love the art form. Um, and I definitely suggest that. And if you're not in Los Angeles area, I definitely suggest you go down to the Center for uh, Puppet Arts over there in Atlanta to check out um, all the marionettes and puppets that they have there. That's just an amazing, amazing place. But uh, definitely check that out for sure. Um, and I like the box truck idea too. I think a lot of bands, uh, you know, people have taken mobile entertainment to a whole new level with these box trucks and, yeah. and bands and stuff um, bringing entertainment to the masses during the pandemic. And I really, really appreciate that as well. Um, cool stuff here again. Um, let's talk about Tom Cruise. And Mission Impossible. Uh, Got this another uh, tidbit from Hollywood Reporter about Paramount execs uh, kind of uh, having some issues with Tom Cruise. Um, (laughs) What's up with that? You know, this was a terrific article in The Hollywood Reporter on the real Mission Impossible saying no to Tom Cruise. Uh, I don't think they can really say no to Tom Cruise. You know, Tom Cruise is one of those uh, few massive box office stars who – 
you know, uh, the end of this article uh, was very telling as to uh, what uh, what it's like dealing with with a massive star. And this uh, uh, I'm just going to read this (laughs) this last paragraph because I Uh thought it was hilarious the the way they ended the uh, the article. It says a veteran of Tom Cruise (laughs) movies laughs when asked how. Robbins is likely to fare and Robbins is, you know, the top dog over at Paramount, uh, which is producing Mission Impossible seven and eight. And the guy says, this is the way thing. This is the way these things go. He says, quote, Tom says what he wants and the studio says what it wants. And then Tom gets what he asked for. <laughs> and I thought it was terrific. But but basically, the article is talking about Mission Impossible 7, which was shooting uh, during the pandemic and had to be shut down. The production was shut down like five or six times yeah. during the pandemic yeah. because there were, you know, COVID outbreaks and they were shooting all over the world. Uh, and then, you know, there, there was a last minute, they decided to add a submarine uh, bit uh, into the, into uh, Mission Impossible 7. So, you know, needless to say, they were talking about cost overruns and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, where do you where do you draw the line? And I don't think you really can uh, with a franchise like Mission Impossible, because there's so much pressure to outdo the last movie, you know, Mm -hmm. and make the stunts that much more spectacular and all of that kind of stuff. And they're shooting Mission Impossible 8. Uh, and Mission Impossible 7 isn't quite finished yet. Uh, and then, you know, they came out and, and said that they were only going to give Mission Impossible 7 a 45-day window before it goes on to Paramount+. Plus. Yeah. And that goes against the contract they have with Tom Cruise, where it has to be a three-month theatrical window. Uh, and so there, there's a lot of issues. You know, it's kind of similar to what happened with uh, Scarlet. Uh, Black, Black Widow and Scarlett Johansson. So, you know, I think they, they, they there's going to be a little bit of a bumpy road transitioning into all of these streaming services and how they're structuring these deals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, well, I love it. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise says what he wants. We say what we want, and Tom Cruise gets what he wants. <laughs> you know, hey, look, I, I yeah. thought it was great, but you know what? Uh, you know, this summer, Al John, they're coming out with um, uh, Maverick. Mm-hmm. Uh, Top, Top Gun, Gun. Maverick. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be a blowout uh, movie. I mean, there's so much anticipation. It's been delayed for a while because of the pandemic. Yep. And, you know, the release date for Mission Impossible 7 is going to be summer 23. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I'm imagining uh, Mission Impossible 8 will be either summer 24 or summer 25. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know what? He, he, he gets the box office draw, you know? And uh, I think uh, just, you know, live and let live, let it, let it happen. Yeah. And the studio knows exactly what they're getting into with Tom Cruise. Make no mistake. They're like, uh, you know, that they're going to be prepared for it. You know, they're going to try to lowball them, but ultimately it's like, well, you can't argue with success. Uh, That's right. You know, back up the Brinks truck. (laughs) And and all I'm going to say is uh, Tom Cruise, we got your back. Yeah, and sure. if you're listening, have your people call our people. <laughs> we'll have you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> 
on a more somber note, um, you know, we started talking about uh, the Foo Fighters early in the show. Taylor Hawkins, a drummer for the Foo Fighters, as well as the Alanis Morissette drummer and early of her career, had passed away at the age of 50. And uh, this happened, uh, or this was yesterday. reported yesterday. This is March 25th yeah. as we uh, we we talk about this. Uh, you're going to be listening to it here on the 20th, 20, 28th. So, yeah. <laughs> so I had to figure out where, where we're recording. So I guess we should say this happened last Friday. This happened last Friday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Past Friday. So Taylor Hawkins, a longtime drummer for the Foo Fighters, died. He was, the, he was 50. A band's representative, Steve Martin, confirmed the news Friday to the Hollywood reporter and his passing was announced on the band's Twitter account. The cause of death is not immediately available. Uh, the response had been posted. The Foo Fighters family is devastated by the tragic and untimely loss of our beloved Taylor Hawkins. The message read his musical spirit and infectious laughter will live on with us forever. The band was in South America on tour and was scheduled to perform in Friday in Bogota, Colombia. They were also scheduled to perform at the 2022 Grammy Awards here April 3rd. Um, wow. Uh, I remember seeing uh, Taylor. I'm a huge Alanis Morissette fan and uh, from the 90s. And I saw him play um, with her to support Jagged Little Pill. Uh, I'm also a musician um, and while I am a hack of a drummer, uh, mostly guitar player, Taylor is probably one of the most influential rock drummers of this new generation uh, over the past 10, 20 years. He is one amazing musician now. It's no uh, no secret that he had his uh, bouts with addiction, but uh, we can only hope that his soul rests in peace. He affected so many in the musician community uh, and tributes have been pouring out all over social media, um, you know, from uh, Tom Morello, from uh, Rage Against the Machine, um, to Duran Duran, to so many others uh, posting about, you know, Brian May from Queen, uh, so many people have collaborated with him over the the years, and you know we we talk about music every now and again on this show, but um, he will be missed. And he just was inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the Foo Fighters in this past class. Um, and of course, we just saw him in the brand new film Studio Six 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 with uh, Dave Grohl and his entire band. So, you know, our heartfelt uh, our heartfelt condolences for his family and of course his. Uh, friends and fans around the globe, and and, and bandmates. You know, bandmates. I mean, this is this is just sad. I I'll be curious to hear what the cause of death is, but yep. uh, you know, uh, this you know, it's it's just untimely and sad. Yep. Rest in peace. Fifty years old. He's gone too yeah. soon. We'll see you soon on the other side, Dave. Uh, right, let's so, go on yep. to something happier. You got it right now. Waiting in the green room, Mister John Musker. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, Al John, as promised, we have an incredible guest once again this week on the Skull Rock Podcast. We've got one of the pistons that was driving the renaissance of Disney animation with us, Mr. John Musker. Uh, and, and all I can say, John, is I can rattle off all of the films, The Great Mass Attack, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, Treasure Planet. I mean, it goes on and on. But uh, welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. Well, well. Yes, uh, thank you, Dave. Thank you, Al John. Thank you, admiring legions of fans that I 
I hear through the courtesy of sound effects. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, and I, I must say, I don't feel as much like a piston. Of course, the pistons are from Detroit, but I, I feel a bit more like a, a burned-out spark plug, I think is what I would say. Yeah. Well, well, John, you know, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show, and I've known you for many, many years uh, uh, when we were incarcerated at uh, uh, Walt Disney yes, Animation I Studios. I know. <laughs> you know, we would put our tent on the bars and do it in unison. It was great, yeah. But, but uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I want to let our listeners know that we're going to have you for two weeks in a row. You brought your sleeping bag. You're going to camp out in our green room. We've got it really well stocked with snacks for you. And uh, I, I want to have a crickets playing on a loop there to make it. Th- th- there you go. So it ma- makes you feel like you're out in the country. Yes, I like uh, but but what I, I want to start with, as I always do with a lot of our guests at the beginning, you're from Chicago. I am from Chicago. Yes. The Windy City. I'm full of hot air. So people aren't surprised that I'm from Chicago, but yes, I am from a big Irish Catholic family in Chicago. I have seven siblings. I'm number two in the eight kids there. Wow. And I grew up in a working class family there out near O'Hare airport. You probably flew over my house many times. Cause I grew up, it was like the equivalent of the Woody Allen movie where he had this, the, you know, the subway or the, the L right next to his place. We had, the, we had the airport right nearby. So we learned, so if, if in the middle of every 10 minutes, if I stop talking, you'll understand why, because that means a plane was going over. You know? so we, we had them literally, we'd look at our backyard of our little brick bungalow in Norwich, which is a little suburb where I grew up of Chicago. And, you know, it'd be, and we'd be trying right over, it was literally the run, there was a runway right lined up with our house. So it, it they flew because we were about 10 minutes from O'Hare, 10 minutes West of O'Hare. Um, so yes, I grew up there and I, like being from Chicago, I, I went to school there, you know, and I didn't really come uh, west to California until I went to CalArts. But I went to, uh, I was educated in Catholic schools back there. I had nuns and then I had priests in high school, went to a Jesuit high school, all guys high school, where some other Hollywood types went. Actually, uh, Chris O'Donnell was there, uh, went to that same high school. But more than that, Bill Murray went to school there and wow. I was, I was a freshman when he was a senior. And so I saw him in the talent show where he, he sang in a folk trio, like a Peter, Paul and Mary, except it was like Peter, Paul and Jim, but it was, uh, and he did a non-ironic version of hang down your head, Tom Dooley. And I saw him do it. And he, I think he played stand up bass, hang down your head, Tom Dooley. You know, it was very uh, much of the moment. That was probably in 1967 when I saw that or so. That's when I was uh, started at Loyola Academy, the Jesuit school I went to there. And then uh, I went, uh, before I went to CalArts, I went to Northwestern University back in Evanston, Illinois. And I was an English major there and I got a degree from them and the whole deal. And I can explain how somehow I got from there to here, but it was. Uh, I, I was going to ask you, like, how, how did you go from getting an English degree at Northwestern to yeah. CalArts? Well, well, as a like, kid, you know, of course, and I'm sure like most of the guys and women who've been on here, I grew up drawing, you know, it was always an interest of mine. I grew up on animation. I saw Warner Brothers cartoons on various uh, children's TV in Chicago. WGN, you know, is the local station and they had uh, Garfield Goose and they would show cartoons and Ray Rayner. And uh, and uh, so I saw plenty of Warner Brothers cartoons and I saw the Disney films as a kid. I, I'm old enough that I saw... You know, the first, one of the first movies I saw in the theater was Sleeping Beauty. And I saw Pinocchio when they had a reissue in 62, I think it was, and I was about nine. And uh, so I, I hit the film, 101 Dalmatians I saw in its first release. 
and Sword in the Stone I saw in its first release. And then I got to be 13. I was too grown up for Disney movies. So I missed Jungle Book and Aristocats and Robin Hood because I was sort of out of the animation loop for a while. But um, anyway, I was always drawing. And I thought I, and then I went to this college prep Jesuit school, all guys school, and I studied the classics. I, it was a very uh, humanities-based background. And so I, I studied classical Greek and Latin. And uh, and I we even had a Chinese priest there uh, from mainland China who escaped in 1949 when the communists came. And he ultimately wound up in Chicago. And so uh, I took Chinese from him. So I, I've forgotten uh, 90% of it, 98% of it. But uh, I had three years of Chinese in high school. Anyway, so then it came around time, you know, where am I going to go to college? And uh, one of the Jesuits, who, uh, speaking of incarceration, I won't go into it, but I think he, he, <laughs> he eventually wound up there. But he was, he was a mentor who got incarcerated. But um, he, uh, he really said, uh, he thought that, and he was talking more to the math science guys that I wasn't one of, but he was like, when you go to college, don't use it as a vocational school. Still be well-rounded. You should try and you know be broad-based. You can focus later, but continue your well-rounded humanities education. It's important for your life and all that. So I, I believed him kind of, and I and I felt that I was also kind of a, I felt that I was interested in drawing and cartooning. And my they had no art classes when I was in high school. I never had an art class in high school because they, they just they you know we're studying all those other things. No time for art. So, uh, but I always you know I had my Red Mag magazine, Marvel comics, and. Pat Oliphant was the great editorial cartoonist whose work I clipped out of the newspaper and put it in a book. And I've got, you know, 10 years worth of Oliphant cartoons I cut out of the newspaper. So there were many different types of cartooning and drawing I was interested in. And I felt like they were all kind of self-taught. So I said, yes, I will go to Northwestern because I felt like my family was uh, impoverished being the big family that was such that they, I couldn't, I didn't think I could go away to school, could afford to. And I was really kind of a homebody anyway. So I applied to a few schools, mainly local schools. I got into Northwestern. So I majored in English feeling that would give me this kind of well-rounded background. And, uh, and so it sort of played out that way. And I wound up being the editorial cartoonist. Funny thing, I, the guy who's the editorial cartoonist, because Northwestern has a big journalism school, mm -hmm. the Medill School of Journalism. And a lot of journalists, and you see even a lot of broadcasters, if you watch ESPN or anything like that, a lot of those guys came out of either Northwestern or Syracuse. Those are two of the big journalism schools that they, they went to, and uh, broadcast journalism too. But uh, so the, the editorial cartoonist on the paper, who was three years older than me, uh, his name was Bill Croyer. And uh, so he did cartoons for the Daily Northwestern. Some of you in your audience may know Bill Croyer. He, you know, has animated many things and directed Fern Gully and then later became the head of the animation program at Chapman University, which he ran for like 10 years. Yeah. But, and, you know, I, uh, by the way, I was going to get I, him I on your show. I, you I, well, you know, so I was trying to get uh, Sue Croyer on, Yeah, I get Sue. Uh, you know, yeah. but, but she, she it's said she, she, she says no to everybody because she doesn't like to be interviewed because she always feels like, you know, she, she gets embarrassed or whatever. I will, I will work on her. I will work on her. Yeah. You should work on her because I will, I, and work on Bill then because I, I was going to reach out them. to Bill. Yeah, I will. I will work on both of them. They should do your show. And, I, I mean, uh, you know, I, I can have them both on at the same time. Maybe she might feel like more that. I think Sue might she, like she that. Might yeah. feel more comfortable that I way. I think that would be kind of a cool duo thing because they've certainly okay. been a, you know, they made Fern Gully together. They met each other at Disney, and then more recently, uh, when Bill was in charge of the program, Sue was teaching at a number of places. She taught at Loyola, taught at Woodbury, taught at Laguna, and taught at Chapman while Bill yeah. was there. And so they they're, they're a team. They're definitely all right. I, I, we, we sidetracked there. I want to get back to what you were saying. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, so, so when Bill graduated, they needed an editorial cartoonist and the guy who was the business manager of the paper 
Mark Freund, who went went to high school with me, he was a year older than I was, and he he knew that I did cart in in high school. I had done kind of editorial cartooning for our high school paper. I did caricatures of teachers and things like that. It was more of a magazine type newspaper that came out like once a month, and uh, everybody you know really got a charge out of the drawings that I did, and so he remembered them. So he kind of recruited me to be the new editorial cartoonist. So I said yes. So I think I was paid like twenty five dollars a week to do a cartoon on Friday, an editorial cartoon. Sometimes it was a national-based topic. Other times it was strictly Northwestern, you know, some controversy within the school. And so I did that for a couple of years then uh, at Northwestern. And all the time then, and I and I did take other classes, which I'm happy I took in that, uh, you know, I, I didn't just have to take English classes, but so I took like art history classes and I took film history classes. And I did get these things that I actually, and I took Dostoevsky classes and things like that. So I... I did get more than just reading uh, Chaucer, you know, and uh, uh, Beowulf and that sort of thing. But I, um, I, but as it got closer to time when I was going to graduate, I'm like, hmm, what do I do now? I'm going to, I am thinking I'm going to get a job in the arts. And well, lo and behold, uh, a couple of things happened. One was that uh, Chuck Jones came and spoke at Northwestern. He spoke uh and it was it's sort of i think maybe i was a junior or something like that but they had a big animation festival and that's just when people like chuck jones and bob clamp were starting to do college this college circuit they discovered that kids like me who had grown up with their cartoons were eager to come and hear them talk about things and so chuck had a whole program he worked out where he showed shorts and talked about them it was very funny very witty and the shorts were just great i hadn't seen some of them for a while and so i saw him and that was very exciting to see him in the meantime my my friends and i made um, one friend in particular, we collaborated on super eight live action films. When I was in high school, I made, we started off, you know, we made like a little 10 minute thing on regular eight that had no dialogue or anything like that. Then we made one where we had a sound stripe on it. We did sort of a mockumentary as they would call it now, that was about 15 minutes long. And then crazy enough, we made a whole feature in super eight in kind of a caper thing, a comedy and uh, and it took us like it's like an animated feature. It took us three or four years. We finally had to finish it because our leading man, who was three years younger than we were, was going off to college. And if we didn't get it done, he was going to be away somewhere. So anyway, so I had that background of doing, you know, kind of really I was writing and directing these little super eight extravaganzas. Um, but I, I I heard so I, I heard Chuck Jones speak and I heard Richard Williams speak. They did a big retrospective of Williams when Christmas Carol came out, his television version of the Charles Dickens uh, classic and drawn in the style of the Dickensian illustrations, you know, on, on grease, with grease pencil on cells and all that. And uh, I heard Williams talk and he was just such a passionate speaker about animation. And he, in effect, talked about Milt Call without ever using Milt Call's name, you know, the famous animator at Disney, one of the nine old men, because uh, uh, he said, you know, they've got these guys, they've got these guys, you know, they can do this, this stuff that's just unbelievable and all. And, uh, <laughs> and he was like, and he was just so flippity jibbity, you know, and, and people were so jazzed by his speech and his passion for animation. There were people in the audience, I still remember, you know, this was like at the Esquire Theater downtown Chicago, they're raising their hands and can I, can I come work for you? And at that time he had a studio in Soho Square in London. They may have, we'll see if we do that or not. But anyway, it was exciting for me to hear him talk. So that got the animation bug in my ear as well. And uh, and then the Christopher Finch book came out right around right the yes. Art of Disney book, and suddenly these and I had read like the Bob Thomas book when I was a kid. You know, it was in the library. I didn't have it, but the Art of Animation and it, it was intriguing to me. And at one point, I you know, <laughs> I had a list on my door when I was growing up 
of occupations that I I might be, you know, like, so, so there was animator on there. I think there might've been priest on there. And I think there was submarine expert. I, I got into submarines for a while because I'm totally claustrophobic. What was I thinking? Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I was, uh, I was getting, you know, there were things. So, so in the Christopher Finch book, you know, suddenly people had names. It wasn't just Walt Disney did everything. It was like, no, there's a, Ward Kimball did this and Frank Thomas did this. And there's this amazing guy, Ken O'Connor, who did these you know, amazing staging and layout things. And so, so it became, and it, so it, it felt to me like, and the other thing that Chuck Jones said was that, you know, here he was, he was probably at that time in his early to mid sixties. And he, I don't know if he said it literally or he just projected it, but basically I got the message that you could be his age and be in animation and still be learning things, you know? And that was appealing to my young mind to hear that I'm like, Wow, you could be, you know, 30 years later into this career, or however long it was, 40 years, and he still feels it isn't tedious. He feels like he's learning things. It isn't a tedious job. It's an engaging and creative job. So all so those things pointed me toward animation. And so in I think the Finch book, they mentioned that there was this training program at Disney, uh, sort of. I think it's mentioned in the book. And so I wrote to the Disney studio. And I got sent back that pamphlet that a number of people of my generation did, you know, with Fred Moore drawings that Eric Larson put together and Bernie Manson, I think. And uh, so you want to work at Disney or whatever it said. And, and it talked about putting together a portfolio of animal drawings and figure drawings. And I took one figure drawing class at Northwestern, maybe two. So I had, I had a few figure drawings that I had done. Uh, but then I had no animal drawings because, uh, as I say, I come from an Irish Catholic family. And in my experience, the, the people in the entire, on the globe that are, have the most allergies are the Irish. And so I was allergic to every known mammal. Uh, so we never, we couldn't have any animals in the house. We were afraid of it, mammals. You know, there were some across the street. There was a German shepherd named Duchess who we would never go near. Don't go near that dog. Um, so I'm like, how am I going to dry animals? So, and now, because I had graduated, I had AP credit. So I got out of Northwestern in kind of the middle of the year. I graduated in like a December type deal. Mm. So... I'm thinking, okay, so I need to put together, so I think I'm going to try to put together a portfolio for Disney and see what happens. I'm intrigued. So, but where am I going to find some animals? So I can go to the Lincoln Park Zoo. And this is like February now. And I'm trying to draw in Chicago in February. And, you know, the poor monkeys were out there. They were shivering. I was shivering. It was so raw. It was like just over freezing. I think maybe it was like 33 degrees. And so I'm trying to draw. And, and I just, I'm, uh, it's just, it was horrible. And I thought, this isn't working. How can I get any drawings really good? And I thought, wait a minute, I know what I'll do. So the next day I went to the Field Museum of Natural History in downtown Chicago. Oh, yeah. They have vast and elaborate dioramas of great yep. animals, you know, on the belt. And, uh, you know, they've got the okapi and they got this and they got that. And so I sat in there in my 72 degrees Fahrenheit comfort in my shirt sleeves. And I drew those. So I drew a whole bunch. Of, in fact, I remember still, I drew the guard. I sketched the guard while he was walking around and he came up behind me. He was a young guy. And he said, the hat is eight pointed, not round. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and as it was, I was always nervous about anybody looking over my shoulder when I sketched. I, I eventually outgrew that inhibition, but I hated you know, drawing in public. Like, oh, somebody's going to look at my drawings. Um, so anyway, so I pulled together my drawings and I sent it off to Disney and eagerly awaited what was going to happen. I didn't know. And it took a couple of weeks. And I got a letter back, I think from Ed, Ed Hanson, the man who ran the yeah. department. Yeah. I think it was from him. And uh, I have it somewhere, but it's buried away. And I got rejected. They rejected me. They said, you know, you don't draw well enough, sort of. And, and I was like, and they said, thank you, but no. And, and they, they gave me one specific criticism. They said, your animal drawings 
are too stiff. <laughs> like stiff, they were stuffed. They couldn't have been more stiff. I drew them the way I saw them. I mean, how could that be a negative? I, that means I was true to what I looked at. But, and I didn't quite understand the idea of, you know, weight and balance and, you know, the feeling of life on the fly. And like, now I can look at those drawings and go, eee! you know, it's like a, you know, it's a that looks kind of post. So um, anyway, but that threw me because I'm like, oh boy, what do I do now? So I think I, my next uh, recourse was, I love comic books. I love Marvel comics. I will send them a portfolio. And I don't know if I mailed them, got their address. So I put, I did sample pages of Spider-Man, sample pages of Daredevil. I did a mystery comic and I just, you know, I made up the stories and I did like a page of each or maybe two pages of each. It was just a page of each. Sent them off to Marvel, Madison Avenue, New York City, Manhattan. Waited to hear back from them. And I got a letter back, perhaps from John Romita, the senior, who was their art director, as well as their chief artist at the time. This was in like, you know, 1975. And uh, I got rejected by them too. You know, they said, you don't draw well enough. Don't ever darken our door again. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, for two. And then I thought, well, I do this drawing for the newspaper. I know the editorial cartoons things, but I see these kind of spot illustrations. I don't know. So I went down to the Chicago Daily News and I talked to a guy named John Downs, who was a good artist who did back in the day, they did have an occasional drawing, you know, to, for a feature story. And he, but he just said, I don't know. Did the, Marmel people, I think maybe they need something you know, like these ad, these ad campaigns yeah. or something, but it went nowhere. And so I was like, wow, uh, my plan of being a humanitarian, you know, humanities-based background, non-vocational training has just blown up horribly in my face. But then lo and behold, I got yet another letter from Disney Studio, perhaps from Ed Hansen again. And it said, maybe you would like to send your portfolio to CalArts. They're just starting a character animation program. It will begin in the fall for its first year. And I had never heard of CalArts. I had no idea what it was. So I, and this is the days before the internet. So once again, I mailed away to them to, to 24700 McBean Parkway, whatever the address was. And they- You know it, 24, yeah. it was 24700 McBean okay, Parkway. Well, yeah. okay. And uh, Just down the road from me. Yes, you're still <laughs> up there, right? Yes, you, you can't escape. Yeah, so uh, I, I was up there uh, the other day doing a, uh, a guest lecture, a voice acting class they have now. A friend of mine here uh, teaches voice acting there. So uh, I was back on campus briefly. Um, so anyway, so he, uh, so I, I learned about CalArts and the little brochure. And then I sent them that same portfolio I had sent Disney. I didn't really change it. And I got accepted at CalArts. And not only that, they were going to eventually, at first I thought maybe they weren't going to give me money. And then some money somehow came through. Cause if I didn't get some money, I wouldn't have been able to go. Right. But I still had to borrow money. I did work study and I borrowed money from a bank that it took me a couple of years to pay off. Even though, you know, I, I, when I was up there the other week, I told them, you know, it cost me, well, even to go to Northwestern was funny. Cause you know, here it is. It's a, kind of the Ivy league of the Midwest. And uh, I'd gone to a Catholic high school that had charged tuition. So to go to Northwestern, my first year, uh, it was, I believe it cost uh, $2,700 was the tuition. Wow. A year ago. Wow. So, and I was living at home. That was the tuition. And I got 1200 bucks grant from the state and I got 1200 bucks from Northwestern. So it cost me $300 <laughs> to go to this Ivy league school. The first what year, a racket. Which was, which was, you know, by the time I left my Catholic school, that cost 500 bucks. So it was like, uh, cause it was cheaper to go to Northwestern. Than it was my Catholic high school. Anyway, when I went to CalArts, I believe the tuition that first year, I think was like $3,800. And so uh, I, I got, again, I got enough money that I still needed more money. So I, my plan was then I was going to work uh, during that summer. Then by the time all this fell through, it was getting near summertime. I was going to get a job 
make some more money to pay for, you know, room and board and getting there. Cause we still had not a whole lot of money to go around for eight kids. Um, but it was funny because with my relatives, they'd be asking me, oh, they're saying, oh so you're going to get a master's degree at Cal Arts, huh? you know, because they knew I had already. And I would kind of hem and haw because really it's like I was starting over. I mean, I didn't, they didn't really have a master's program, although Henry Selig talked them into giving him a master's degree because he had a, a degree that he came there with from, I think, Syracuse. He went to Rutgers and then went to Syracuse, I think. And so they, he was in Jules' program, but they said, okay, it's a master's degree. But this, <laughs> this uh, character animation thing was just starting and there was no such thing. So I just thought, well, I'll give it a year and see what happens. You know, sure. I, I don't, I don't know what to expect. It's like, if I'm interested in working at Disney, this is, these are Disney veterans supposedly are teaching it. Uh, we'll see. I had never been to the state of California. I had never seen the school, you know, now. Were you, were you ever West of the Mississippi? Yes, I was West of the Mississippi because we did family vacations again because of the allergies. Cause we were considering relocating to Arizona or New Mexico for my mother's asthma, which was terrible. So we actually went to Yellowstone and we went to uh, uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, right. but never to California. They didn't go to California until the year that I was going to go to Cal Arts, but I couldn't go because I had to stay and work to make money to go to school. So while they went to Disney, they went and saw Cal Arts that summer while I was home working. It was crazy. So they came back. And it was, again, the days before videotape. So they had nothing other than their verbal description. And my dad came back and I said, so what did you think of the campus back there? What did you do? And he said, well, it's kind of stark. That was the one word he used for it. And certainly to anybody thinking, a college campus, ivy-covered walls, and all that, back in the mid-'70s, you know, there were scruffy oak trees. There were no grounds. There ain't no stinking ivy anywhere. And uh, so, you know, they got a little sight of the, the school. They didn't really get a big tour or anything like that. But anyway, like, okay, here I go. But I, and I've never been to California even. So I, I, uh, so I prepared myself and I flew out there, never having been to California. I got picked up by the van at the airport and they can't remember that. What was the van driver? Were you, you're too much younger. Do you know? No, I don't, I don't remember the van driver. Because he was there, he was a young guy and he, and he drove for a long time, but they drove us in and, and I got off the van and I saw, you know, men hugging men, something I hadn't really seen before, you know, where I was like, okay, I'm not in Kansas anymore. It just was the whole, it was just like, whoa, this is the mid seventies and Cal Arts was kind of a countercultural school back in that day. You it, know, we, it really was. It, it was, it was more conceptual, conceptual art. Conceptual art, the John yeah. Baldessari thing and yeah. all that. I mean, when there were art shows in the main gallery, I mean, we were like, you know, there were things, assemblages hanging up. It wasn't painting, you know, fine art painting or any traditional thing. And yet they had built them. It had been built somewhat on the bones of Chouinard and there was very little of Chouinard left in it to, to the right. uh, anger of those teachers who got left behind from Chouinard and weren't really wanted at this avant-garde school. Um, but we were looked at when we got, when we got to Kellars, though, there was this feeling among the student body of suspicion of the character animation students. We were like, we worked for, like we were, we were vocational students and we were like, and we were sort of part of the man, you know, like the man that would weigh down on them. And we were, I, yeah. And there was still a little of that when I was up there, you know, yeah, from it was 80, gradually, 80 to 83, but it was starting to sort of wear to off. A little yeah. bit, but it was very, still very strong then. So we were looked at very like, like almost bewildered. Like, what are you doing here? And are you going to ruin our beautiful school? And are you, you know, like spies? Are you, it's almost like, you know, with the Democratic, you know, when you see uh, the Chicago seven thing and you see, here's the, 
the people protesting outside and then there's the girl and it turns out she's an FBI person, you know, or something. It's like we were the FBI. I actually, people, you know, I, I, I view, I viewed the animation program after I was out of there uh, when animal house came out uh, when they have the big frat party and, and, and the couple of, uh, of sort of nerdy guys show up and they're walked, they're walked into the back room and they, they're sat on that sofa you know, that was the animation program. That was pretty know? much it. I remember <laughs> you when when I was there one of those two years, I think, you know, they would they have the big blowout Halloween parties at CalArts where yeah. people would go absolutely nuts. And I think one of those years, the theme was going to be post-nuclear Holocaust sort of thing, you know, and the sub-level was going to be like the fallout shelter and all that. But then they reconsidered the theme because they thought so many people would be tripping on various substances that they would believe it and they might hurt themselves. <laughs> The world had come to it. So they had to change their theme. So, so that was the world to which we I entered. I who, uh, you know, when I was at a concert at Northwestern, you know, somebody handed me a joint. I said, thanks. And then I handed it to the next guy. I mean, that's the way it was. I'm sorry. Uh, so, and, but I did actually drink beer at Keller's. At least I started drinking beer a little bit uh, with John Lester of all people. But, uh, uh, and uh, so, so it was, it was, a. but the weird thing of course was we were this, band of gypsies, you know, this kind of band of nerds, like you say, animation nerds, some of whom knew a lot about animation. I would say I was not one of them, but I was, but people like Daryl Van Sitters who had worked at a studio in Albuquerque, he worked at Bandelier Films, you know, doing yeah. uh, short films with Mike Sanger, who was part of the uh, Mark Hausler, Mike Sanger, uh, Walker, Tim Walker. There was a whole, you know, Milt Gray. There was this whole, I think, kind of strata of people who were a little older than us who had yeah. been kept out of the Disney studio for the most part, who, you know, were around before there was a training program and who really might've wanted to work there and were turned away because they were cartoonists and they, you know, and they did, they were, they had done work at other studios, which was an anathema to the Disney people. Who said they wanted people who are unformed and didn't have the bad habits of having worked in Saturday morning or whatever. They wanted sure. to really have a blank slate for the people that were teaching it. So it was so, and they, but they were frustrated because, uh, you know, they were put, pouring money into CalArts as, uh, you know, in Walt's legacy. This really, obviously, was only, you know, like, uh, whatever it was, nine years after he had died. But uh, yeah, but, but they but, were seeing well, very little of their money coming back in terms of any sort of students interested in the kind of animation they did. But yeah. but Walt, Walt had uh, designs on doing CalArts uh, back in the early 60s. Oh, he did. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that wasn't, yeah, no, it was his... And it was a great idea, and it's still, I think, a really good idea. I don't know how it's delivered on his promise, because I I didn't really take advantage even when I was there. I should have. And in a way, I had more of an opportunity than some people, because I came with a degree. So I, you know, the Wednesday, at that time, they had, like, critical studies on Wednesday, which is a way for people to get their general education degree. I didn't do any of those classes, so I only had a degree. But... Did I go to a dance class? Did I take a film class? No, I only did the classes in our curriculum. You know, right. so I feel like in an ideal universe, if I were ever running colors, I would, and I still, and it's just built up, like maybe it can't be that way, but I would really love it if somehow they could be, these interdisciplinary things could really happen. You could have, and maybe they're doing it more now, where you can have people from the, the theater department teaching animators acting. You can have people from the dance department talking about movement and you yeah. can have, and I don't know if they, that has changed move in that direction, but I, I wish it would just because it's such a great resource. And, and, and that's what the school was set up to be, was to yeah. have that cross-pollinization going on between the, the various schools. As it was, we had Jack, Jack Hanna was in charge of the program. When we yes. Were, and he was totally, 
leery of the, the rest of the school, and particularly the film program headed by Sandy McKendrick, who was a brilliant director. And even sure. now, I wish I had taken a class with him. I read, I read you know, at least parts of his books, and you know, I've seen his flashcards that he does and talks about story and script writing. And they're brilliant. They're so useful and they're great. And he directed brilliant, brilliant films. And here's this guy and here's Jack Hanna. Watch out for that Sandy guy. You know? I mean, just, <laughs> Jack, Jack. <laughs> so, uh, and, and just just for our listeners to to know, Jack Hanna, uh, veteran of uh, the Donald Duck and Chippendale cartoons, uh, he uh, was the head of the program. You had Bob McCray. Uh, well, he wasn't there when I was there. Bob okay, Bob McCray came in when I was there, but T was T he there? Yeah. So when I was there, it was it was Jack Hanna, who was not to be confused with confused with Hanna Barbera. That is right. William Hanna, totally different guy. Yeah. Say no relations. No relations. We had Elmer Plummer teaching figure drawing. Yep. He was an uh-huh. old yard teacher and then worked at Disney doing, you know, story uh, sketches with brilliant watercolors taught by Millard Sheets and all that sort of thing. I have and one of, I have one of Elmer Plummer's watercolors. Dude, that's great. I have, I have uh jiglaze of them. I, I love to see hers. <laughs> I bought, it's a beautiful jiglaze, but I would love to, I bid on some, you probably outbid me at the heritage. But, but what I do have from Elmer, I have it hanging on my wall. I could, I could show it on this podcast, but. It came up for auction. Some of Elmer's estate came up and maybe that's where he got the thing. But they had, Elmer was very meticulous about things. They were, they were had up for auction. His attendance charts where we had all filled out our names from that first year class. Oh my so gosh. So, and, and so, and he had it every week mapped out here. Let me, uh, I'm going to show it to you. Today. <laughs> this is a treat uh, for our listeners john has uh stepped away from the mic and uh he's brought back a frame for us to take a look at oh my god Whoa. look at that this is a this is a the attendance chart for the class and every one of these columns is a week but everybody signed their own name so i have the signatures of brad bird and daryl van sitters and john lester and me and and uh, all the other luminaries who uh, were there. Uh, were there. Har- Harry, and, and all of those people. Yeah, and Henry Selleck, although Henry, Henry gets crossed out after a few weeks because he transferred into Jules Poirier. He realized, this isn't what I want to do. I want to do art. And so he, <laughs> he went off and did that. So yeah, so that was like 200 bucks. But I I made a copy for Brad and I made a copy for, I think, Doug Leffler, who's in our class with us. And uh, and I want to give one to everybody that was in the class. Mike Sedino was in our class too. Um and Nancy Beeman, the infamous Nancy Beeman. Yeah, Nancy was a guest on our show. That's good. I'm glad. Last year, yeah. I've got to, I've got to explore your archives. I haven't, but I'm I'm so busy. Um, so anyway, so I was there. And so we were a band of, you know, like-minded nerds. And like I say, Brad knew, Brad had, you know, as a kid had made a film of the tortoise and the hare up in Corvallis, Oregon, and it became this weird little, 10 year old, 11 year old protege of Milt Call, you know, where he actually came down and got notes at his from, from Milt Call. And, and so, so when, so when we were doing animation up there, well, and, and even the, the things that have become institutionalized in Cal Arts since I was there were being created as we were there. Cause literally it was the first yeah. year program. So that summer, John Lasseter and Jerry Reese who were the TAs for the program had uh, gone through the Morgan Xeroxed a bunch of Disney animation scenes and those scenes then had in between sort of pulled from them. And so we were, and this program was partially designed by Don Duckwall, I think who, you know, knew, and I think may have been in charge at one point of like the, like George Drake was in the old days, I think, you know, the in-betweening pool at the studio. And so this is the way you learn animation. You spend a year in between. So anyway, that first semester, our animation class, 
consisted of go of us going in. We didn't even do a bouncing ball. I think we did in betweens of you know these difficult to draw. I was doing Harvey Toombs scene from you know Alice in Wonderland. And yeah, I I was you know I couldn't do it. And I and there was a great scene of uh, Tony John Lounsbury scene of Tony from Lady and the Tramp. And I think I did stuff on that again. Terrible, awful. Anyway, so but we in the meantime we had this kind of subgroup going on where Daryl, who had a car, he was the only guy who had a car. He and I and Harry Sabin would go on the weekends and he was, he knew Mark Hauser through Mike's hangar. We'd go down to Mark Hauser's tiny little house that was like uh, near uh, uh, Vandy Camp's bakery there, sort of off of Flushing. <laughs> and, uh, and it was like, you know, it had an animation desk in there and he had just books and paper. And it was like, you know, like a bachelor. It's like Roger's apartment from, you know, with, without the dogs, just but with t- crammed with animation-related stuff. And Mark collected cartoons. He knew everything about cartoons and cartoons. Yeah. And he knew all that stuff. So we would have these film fests at, at Mark's house, and he would show us animation from Bosco and things like that, and even other things, all sorts of Warners and Tex Avery and Clampett, you know, things that he had gotten on 16mm over the years. And that was part of our education, really, was going there and seeing these films. and just It was cool. Anyway, and I even... Went to Ben Washam's class briefly. Ben Washam who was an animator for Ch- in the Chuck Jones unit because he felt like he wanted to give back to something. At that point, he was sort of at retirement age almost. And he he lived up by Mount Olympus there. And he, in his garage, he had an animation, his animation thing set up. And he would have students and he would give out assignments with an act sheet. So I had an assignment of doing a scene of Bugs Bunny. And of course, I knew nothing about animation timing. So he's like, he had marked out, okay, so the rabbit salts the carrot here. And then he sniffs the carrot and then he eats the carrot and all this stuff. And I, I animated it and it was like, uh, the rabbit was on speed. I mean, basically, it was all a hundred miles an hour. And I'm still to this day, I have a problem with that. I guess slow down. People have to see this. Um, so I did that, but, but we talked Jack into letting us do animation. I mean, it wasn't even the plan. I think the plan was for a whole year of this industry, like Jack, we're only going to learn this by doing it. Let us do some tests footage, you know, and yeah. he said, okay. So he, he, he went along with it, kind of. yeah. but we didn't really get instruction. He would come around and he would critique our work, but it was more from a story point of view. You talk about gags and business, yeah. not the technique of animation, not, I mean, he might say a little thing about an anticipation, but he hadn't animated in years and years. So he really couldn't talk to, to the specifics of that later when you had people like Hal Ambrose and stuff like that, who had actually was an animator for a number of years. Yeah, and Bob McCray and, and Bob McCray yeah, as well. Yeah. You had you had that more direct link, but for us, it wound up that we were kind of teaching ourselves animation. So, and so I was learning from my other classmates, and I had you know at those days there was Wademco. Do you remember Wademco? But they did uh, they did ten minute cuts of the features on Super Eight, so you could get Super Eight versions of Pinocchio in ten minute reels. Not the whole movie, but they would pick a sequence or two and release it like that. And so, in making my live action films in high school, I had a Super Eight viewer. Um, so I took that with me to Cal Arts and I took my cuttings that I, I bought at the camera stores where they would sell them or I, or I found them somewhere. And so I, I looked at Snow White and Pinocchio, the 10 minutes that I had of yeah. them, and I made a notebook of what I took it apart scene by scene and shot by shot. And I, I actually drew, you know, and I, and I was reading these lectures, Daryl would get these things from the Don Graham action analysis things, you know, and I'd read Xerox of those were talked about his, how Bill Titler animated forces, not forms, you know, and he really, uh, it was a new type of animation on so so those became my teachers in a way and i i would i noted okay it took eight frames to get from here to here and 
here's the muscular force that's at work here, and here's the resolution of it. And I have, I still have those somewhere, these notebooks I built of that stuff. And in the meantime, I wasn't doing my own animation. So a year passes, we become close friends. You know, everybody's got their quirks. It's funny, you know, we're, and uh, when the end of the year rolls around and, uh, and I feel like I have learned a fair amount. Uh, and, and Bill Moore was our design teacher. He was the one that we learned the most from that first year. He was a Chouinard guy then, had gone to Art Center once Chenard, I think, shut down. And yeah, we've we've talked about Bill Moore a few times. Yeah, on I would this think show. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he used to, yeah, he used to call it off center. That's what, I work at off center. But uh <laughs> yeah, and he but he was he was a very tough uh critic and so many of the people who came through bear his stamp of his design sense and everything like that. Anyway, at the end of the year then Jack suddenly came to us and said, Hey, there's people who are gonna come down from Disney. We're gonna have some wine and cheese and dead uh, put up your your we're going to put up your figure drawings and let's, we're going to put your animation together. And so this came like we had, you know, a few days to prepare basically to think, Oh, suddenly people are going to see the stuff we've done. And that was the beginnings of the quote. That was the very first show. one of the producer yeah. show. Yeah. And it was just the Disney, you know, eventually now the producer show has many different outlets, which reflects the nature of the industry that partly also there was a time when then Disney stopped hiring and they're like, well, we want to show it to somebody who might hire these people. So they started inviting people from other studios, but, um, it was only the Disney Review Board, and so Willie Ryderman and Mark Davis and uh, and Don Bluth and Frank and Ollie and uh, uh, they all came down, you know, to see our work. These luminaries were like, oh, these people are here in our theater, you know, it's amazing. And uh, and so they saw the and Bob Fitzpatrick. I'm sorry if you're linked to Bob Fitzpatrick at all, but he was always this kind of yeah political guy who you yeah. know made sure that he greased the wheel, you know the the Disney uh, machine sort of to keep uh, himself employed and all that. He was a very political guy. He, he was the president of, of Cal arts during the president years. Of Cal arts. And so he would, he came and we hadn't seen him all year, but now that the Disney people were there suddenly, Hey, there's Bob Fitzpatrick. And he's interesting. <laughs> it's like, he had something to do. Get out of here. You didn't have anything to do with it. You know, we were very, you know, we were not the most welcoming, but he was there at the reception anyway. So we showed our, we had our drawings up there and everything. And, uh, and we showed our, we put all our films together in a, in a single reel. And ironically, out of all those films, they they liked my film that first year and they wanted to hire me, you know, and I'm suddenly, wait, wait, what? And they're like, yeah, we, we'd like you to come in and work for us in our animation training program. And I, and I hadn't anticipated it all. And me being this kind of from a close family from 2000 miles away, suddenly, wait, minute, I'm going to pull up roots and I'm going to, I'm going to live out here and I'm going to have a job and all this stuff. It was kind of overwhelming to me. And I think I expressed that to them. And uh, they said, well, you know, you could you could just be an intern here for the summer if you'd like, you know, and you could just work for like eight weeks with Eric Larson, who's in charge of our training program. And you then, you know, you could go back to school again. And so I thought, I think that's what I would like to do. I think that would actually be the best thing for me. And then I'll have a whole year to prepare mentally, like I'm moving to California. I'm going to be, right. you know, and it was just such a big adjustment. So I said, okay, so that summer, I got to work with Eric Larson and I worked in a little bullpen room next to Eric and yeah. way up in the, his, you know, the training wing there. And I love Eric Larson to this day. I feel like he's the one who really taught me how to animate and was a mentor to an entire generation. It was the most sure. popular, gentle, great mentor that you can imagine. And uh, I learned a lot from Eric. I did tests that were just tests of my own creation and he would just, you know, if you had people talk about Eric, but you know, he would, it wasn't the drawing, it was the thinking that went into it. And there were technique things. He would put a piece of paper over your drawing. He wouldn't draw it like you drew it, but he would show you with arcs and with timing things and clearing up silhouettes and change of shape, 
positive statements, uh, appeal, all, all these different lessons sort of we, we learned from Eric. And so, so at the end of the eight weeks goes by and I, and I do my thing there. And uh, well, actually, no, what happened was the first test I did, uh, I'm trying to remember, was this after the first year or the second year? I get the two years confused. No, I think I, I did a different test that first year. And so, so anyway, I went back to, uh, so I went back to CalArts. And now I had a second year thinking this whole year, I'm going to go to work at Disney at the end. But I, it was a great learning year for me too. I wound up kind of doing a whole short that second year. Uh, you know, I was kind of crazy. And uh, so a few, a little bit of it was story sketch, but it was basically about a six minute thing that I animated where and pretty, pretty scribbly and loose. Um, but, you know, and I, and by collaborating again, fast friendships with, you know, Daryl and Brad and Jerry and all those people. So once again, now the end of the year rolls around and here now it's slightly institutionalized. Okay. They're coming back. And so, but before they were going to come back, I, of course, we, I went down, I've tried to find a pay phone. There were just the days before there were cell phones. I went sure. down by the, by the cafeteria. There was a pay phone over there, I think back in the day. And I dialed the Disney studio there and I said, you know, hi, this is me. I gave my name and I got put through to, perhaps it was Ed Hanson. I don't know who I was talking to, but it probably was Ed Hanson. And basically I was told, I said, remember me? And, you know, and we talked last year and I was there as an intern. And they're like, wait, who are you again? <laughs> and I was like, you remember I was there last year? <laughs> and they're like, uh, hey, uh, we didn't make you any promises. We'll see We'll see if we even like you. I mean, there's, there's no guarantees of anything. Wow. And I'm like, okay. And I hang up and I'm just like, I just made the biggest blunder of my life. I had a sure job last year and I turned it down to go back to school and now it may be gone. I'm like, holy mackerel. I had no idea that's what I was doing, but I guess that's what I did. And I was just kind of shook. But anyway, so we had the show. Fortunately, they liked the test that I showed once again. And so, so I became part of the first of the farm league from CalArts that went to work. It just, you know, Glenn had come earlier, but Glenn was in Jules Brown, so he doesn't count. But from the character animation program, the first four people, five people that emerged from that, that all left at the end of that second year. It was me, Brad, Jerry Reese, Doug Leffler, and Henry Selleck. We all left Cal yeah. two years and we all came in. And uh, I think Doug, in somewhere, I think he might have gone actually to work at Imagineering for a while with Blaine Gibson. and uh, But then he eventually came back to the studio and uh, worked in the story department. But um, so then once we came in, though, now we're under Eric Larson, again, we're sort of doing tests. We are in a thing where, again, you're doing a four-week pencil test, and and we'll see, you know, and then, and then it is like, if they think you've got promise, you'll continue, but if you don't, it's possible that may be it. So there was no guarantee that you were you were yeah. considered a trainee, and, you know, you weren't an yeah. animator or anything like that. At least that's the way it was back then. Um, so, yeah. So, so like that, I, I, that you know that was just wonderful to hear, and uh, and it's actually perfect timing that you're taking a sip of water because I I was going to say we're bumping up against the the uh, the time for for our interview, but fortunately we're going to have you back next week. So uh, while you are camping out in our green room. Um, uh, think about uh, Aladdin because we're going to fast forward from your uh, getting into the Disney studio and working under Eric Larson. We're going to fast forward to Aladdin because this year is the 30th anniversary. How's that sound, John? It sounds fine. Okay. I will, I will, I have my sleeping bag. I, I, uh, you know, I, with my allergies, I didn't do a lot of camping when I was growing up, but I, I, I haven't started sneezing yet, so let's see if I, see if I can keep that up. Well, the green, the green room is a sterile environment. <laughs> okay, way to go. 
All right, we'll see you next week. Okay, see you next week. Your attention, please. <laughs> now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. The early years of a yawn John Musker <laughs> over you know, there. It, it really was terrific uh, hearing uh, how he got uh, out to Cal Arts and got into the business. Uh, and I honestly, I cannot wait until next next week's show because we're going to be talking all about Aladdin mm-hmm. because it's the 30th anniversary this year. Can't believe it. You know? I can't I mean, believe it, it. It, it. Yeah, it's crazy. So we're going to we're going to devote next week's show entirely to the film Aladdin. You know what? I, I, it's it's the interesting. Animated, the animated film Aladdin. Right. right? I have to qualify <laughs> you that. You have to qualify that. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know, I laugh. I laugh so much because it's it's just funny how much time these films have just passed. It seems like this yesterday I was enjoying them in a theater. Um, and you worked on so many of those films in the era, or you know, so yeah. many of these people in the era being part of the studios during that time. And gosh, what a cool time it must have been to be a fly on the wall to see you all work on these projects. That would have been a lot of fun. It, it, it really is hard to believe this with 30 years because I just still feel like a youngster. You are right a youngster, now. Dave. I, I, I mean, honestly, I mean, it's just, it's kind of crazy. I, you know, I, I'm starting to tell people, I used to tell people I started working on those movies when I was 18. Now I'm t- <laughs> telling people I, I was 15 when I started working. Oh, there you <laughs> go. There you go. There you go. I love it. Pretty, I, pretty soon I'm going to be, I came in from kindergarten with my, <laughs> with, with my number two pencils. <laughs> That's it. That's it. You should. Hey, Greg, don't forget, if you love Disney and pop culture, don't forget to subscribe to the show on every podcast platform imaginable leave us those five star reviews if you would be so kind and you can also follow us on all social facebook twitter instagram be sure to check out the show archive there skullrockpodcast.com as well as anchor.fm where you can also become a proud supporter of the show send us those listener emails we love them david skullrockpodcast.com or aljohn at skullrockpodcast.com and dave uh, the the house of the future book the House of the Future Indiegogo campaign is still rolling strong. You can place yeah. your pre-orders. How's the, that coming along? The the one thing I was going to tell everybody, this is the last week of the uh, pre-order uh, House of the Future book campaign on Indiegogo. So if you haven't done it yet uh, and you want to, uh, reserve your copy at the uh, discounted price uh this week it's going to end i think on april 2nd so you got this week to do it uh and if you've already done it thank you very much and with that i would say peace and love to all of you uh go out and have a fantastic week it is spring uh spring has sprung uh, and uh, the weather's starting to get nice, at least out here in Los Angeles. Uh, in other parts of the country I know have been struggling with some of the tornadoes and stuff, and so our thoughts and prayers go out to you if you've been affected by any of that. But uh, continue to listen, continue to send your emails, and we will see you next week right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. 
Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.